My name's Deb Mitchison and I'm from Western Sydney University. I'm Laura Hart, I'm from the University of Melbourne. Hi, I'm Philippa Hay, I'm from Western Sydney University and the South West Sydney Local Health District, namely Camden and Campbelltown Hospital. Hi, I'm AJ Williams, I'm a Radjuri Watchable Aboriginal man. Um, I work at my own company called Gilray Genie Consultancy. I'm Tracy Wade and I'm from Flinders University. Welcome everyone to the podcast. Really nice to have you here. This is amazing that we've got all five of you before the conference. Deborah, do you want to start just by kind of giving us a general introduction to this plenary? Uh, tell us what the aims and objectives are, please. Yeah, sure. Um, so the the overall theme of the conference is breaking down silos. And so I, I guess our panel really fits in nicely with that theme uh, because we're looking at how eating disorders have um, traditionally and historically kind of been um, sidelined as as an area of mental health research and the problems uh, that have have arisen because of that um, and reasons why we might um, consider bringing them more into line and um, thinking about eating disorders within the broader mental health context um, for future uh, research. In our plenary, we'll be talking about uh, clinical considerations as well as um, research. Uh, So we'll be talking about how eating disorders often co-present with other symptoms of mental illness and um, how, when it comes from, from the lived experience, um, these are not considered as kind of separate illnesses. It's all just a, a jumble of symptoms and um, why clinicians really should feel more confident in treating and, um, and working with people who have eating disorders or symptoms of, of eating disorders within uh, the context of broader mental health. And also thinking about um, misconceptions that have arisen around the prevalence and the burden of eating disorders and how that's caused problems for things like funding and um, building and generating knowledge on eating disorders. That so I guess we're looking to bring in quite a broad, diverse audience for this then. It's not just a kind of specialist eating disorders audience that you're targeting. Yeah, that's right. So SMHR, um, the delegates are ideal for this plenary. Um, So the audience will include researchers across really um, broad areas of mental health. And and some of those people will have worked with eating disorders previously, but most of them uh, we're assuming will have not. And um, so we're really challenging the audience to consider how they might start thinking about eating disorders in the context of the um, of of where they work in terms of the mental health diagnoses or presentations which which they typically work within Um, and, you know, how we can uh, strengthen how the fields can come together as one and and, um, we can learn from each other and and move forward in terms of generating knowledge and and improving prevention and treatment of mental health in general, including eating disorders. So, Laura, why the forgotten mental illness? Thanks, Andre. I think there's a default setting for eating disorders in mental health research to be forgotten or deprioritised because there's so much to do and there are misunderstandings about eating disorders that they are not common, that they're not serious, that they don't lead to significant burden of disease. And this misunderstanding really feeds the idea that eating disorders don't warrant top priority 
in mental health research funding or initiatives. So they've been left out of really important research programs and funding. So the World Mental Health Survey Initiatives that were started by the WHO back in the late 1990s um, left eating disorders out. There were only four countries that actually assessed for eating disorders and they assessed for the ones that were really rare, very strict diagnoses based on the old DSM criteria. And there's been no updates to the new DSM-5 criteria. And in Australia in particular, they haven't been assessed in any national uh, community-based representative survey. So in the year 2022, we still do not have high quality nationally representative data on eating disorders. We still don't understand how big the problem is, how vast the burden of disease is, but the, there's been wonderful research showing that um, they're really important. They're much more prevalent, they're much more serious, they're much more burdensome than previously thought. And if we just um, begin to create the willingness to include eating disorders, this misinformation will fall away and people will start to realise just how big a problem they really are. I just want you to kind of expand on the severity, first of all, before we move on and get, get into that for a bit more detail. Because we've known for a long time, we've known for over a decade, that eating disorders have the highest mortality rates of any mental health condition. We know that the mortality associated with eating disorders is significantly higher you know, five to seven times higher, a Canadian study from last year showed, than the general population. Um, I just, I'm trying to get my head around how we can forget about something that is this severely affecting people. We're trying to get our heads around it too, and that's part of what the plenary is about, is, is trying to get the broader mental health research field to start thinking about how can we integrate eating disorders into the work that we do and stop thinking about eating disorders as a specialist issue that sits aside from or deprioritised to the rest of the field. They are a common, a major category of mental illness. They carry severe burden. The risk of suicide is very high. The risk of death from other illnesses is very high. The impacts on education, relationships, economic um, and, you know, work engagement is incredibly high. And yet they're left out of national surveys. They're left out of child screening measures. They're left out of screening initiatives in general practice, in youth mental health. They're just, the default is to leave eating disorders out. And we need to scramble and to lobby to constantly be trying to get eating disorders to be included. So one example is that the research funding for eating disorders sits at around around $1 per affected individual in Australia. And for um, psychosis, that's over $60 per affected individual for research funding. So the discrepancy there in research funding is far beyond the, any discrepancy in burden of disease. Um, and it, it really doesn't make any sense. Philippa, let's talk a bit about the epidemiology. Of eating disorders. Tell us a bit about how common they are, who they affect, and what the health burden is, please. Following on from the previous comments, it's the belief that eating disorders are not very common, I think, that has contributed a lot to the under-recognition of them and the under-treatment and the under-researching of them. But they are very common, and we don't have, as Laura said, a national survey, but we do have data from Australia, which is 
completely consistent with data from other parts of the world that eating disorders are very common. In every classroom, there will be at least one, if not more, young person with an eating disorder. In every general practice surgery, every day, one of five people attending may well have an eating disorder. In every age group, we see people with eating disorders. We know they occur in the very young, but we also know they occur in the middle age and in the old elderly people. And because of the lack of sort of early recognition and early treatment, the commonest age for someone with an eating disorder in Australia is actually in their 30s and 40s. And that's, but that's because they've not had any recognition. So when we see people clinically, they will have had an eating disorder for at least a decade. That's the average length of time people have an eating disorder for before they come to treatment. The other thing is that they occur across all sociodemographic groups. They occur in the centre of town. They occur in the outer suburbs. They occur in rural areas. They occur in every ethnic group. They occur in migrants. They occur in Indigenous Australians. They occur across all men, all women, and all genders that we know. So it's not like they're not occurring in those across those broad sociodemographic groups, which is a really another important message, I think. That's a perception that they only occur in a very narrow sociodemographic group that has sort of misled people to not even ask about them. And some of our research has found that when people go for help with an eating disorder, you get comments like, but you don't fit the stereotype. You're not, you're a boy, you can't have an eating disorder or you're too old to have an eating disorder, or you're not thin enough to have an eating disorder. Very common comments that people encounter when they go to seek help. So it has a major impact, this discrepancy and this under-recognition, and that under-recognition goes along with the under-research, under-researching of people with eating disorders, and they are costing. And again, we have got data from Australia which shows that they're costing billions of dollars and years of life lost from eating disorders, and that's from years of life lost from productivity, people not being at work, not being where they want to be, not leading fulfilling lives, and also the cost of actually living with an eating disorder. The health seeking that goes on outside the eating disorder because of the physical and mental health consequences and comorbidities of an eating disorder that Tracy will be talking about a bit more as well. But people with eating disorders suffer from depression, they suffer from anxiety, they suffer from physical health problems, and then they suffer from the costs of attending to those problems as well. So the bottom line is very common, all walks of life and high cost. And can you say something about what's happened recently in the last two or three years during the pandemic? We've seen lots of reports here in the UK about increased rates of certain mental health conditions and eating disorders are very much part of that group. What's the evidence that, that we have actually seen an increase? Yes, there has been researchers have found that there's been an increase in people presenting, people being admitted, people in inpatient units, for example, particularly large study was done in the UK across the NHS, showing there's an increased prevalence of people with eating disorders in the healthcare system and seeking help and needing help. There's also been research showing that there's been problems with access getting to that help. And sometimes the access has been there, but it may not have been as good as it could have been. For example, people with some forms of eating disorder, there's been only access to phone consultations, for example, whereas really with some of the eating disorder, we very often need to see someone at least on a Zoom, if not in person. So access has been a problem that's probably led to um, delays in actually getting treatment and therefore the increased prevalence of people with eating disorders and also the effects of COVID in itself, the food insecurity, the 
people with eating disorders are very, very triggered by images of empty shelves and supermarkets and that whole not being able to access food, food not uh, being available or having to be delivered in ways, that whole disruption to the delivery and the access to food probably has added to, in addition to all the other mental health effects we know of the COVID pandemic, the isolation, the restrictions on life, the lack of access of meeting your loved ones, the missing of important life events because of being restricted, combined with the food insecurity and other effects of COVID probably contribute to a triggering, a worsening of symptoms of people who already have an eating disorder and maybe a triggering and of the pathway into an eating disorder for some people as well. Okay, so AJ, let's move on to you. Um, you're going to provide a kind of lived experience perspective on this, which is fantastic. Why do you think people struggle to seek help when they have eating disorders problems? Look, I think eating disorders does affect everybody and not all professionals know or understand that, um, for example, in our project, that people in larger bodies can actually have eating disorders. There's a big stereotype around young females that actually uh, are the eating disorder models, yet eating disorders, as, as mentioned, uh, affects uh, di different groups of people, different ages of people. My own experience as a young Aboriginal male, I struggled with, with bulimia from the ages of 12 to about 18. And it was really hard to seek treatment because every time I, I was sent to a doctor for not being well, they no one was looking at it being an eating disorder because they didn't meet the stereotypes that they had in their head. And it wasn't until I was about 15 or 16 when I actually fainted at school and one of my teachers was in the ambulance going to the hospital with me that she actually mentioned to the paramedic at the time I really think that AJ might have an eating disorder it'd be really good if um, you know when we get to the hospital that we can tell them tell the nursing staff that we're on a mission and that moment I got to the hospital and that was relayed the whole treatment kind of changed the way that I was actually seen kind of changed because the discussions that were around previously were really around not actually understanding that, as was mentioned, that my the reasons why I was doing it was a lot to do with not being able to cope with a lot of uh, stress in my life, not being bullied at school. There was a lot of issues that led to my eating disorder, but none of that was discussed any other time I, I, I was admitted to a hospital. I was admitted mainly because they thought that um, there was some medical concern rather than it being um, an eating disorder. When it was kind of diagnosed, it was hard to, it was a bit of a process because then once I had the diagnosis, not many people knew how to actually respond to it. So I still remember having psychologists and a psychiatrist actually say to me when I was even, and I was like 16, 17 at the time going, I've never worked with a young boy that's got an eating disorder before. I'm not exactly sure what I, what to do. And the support and the materials that were given to me were all written in a way that was presented to a young female because I was given a pamphlet to talk a bit about what I was thinking, what I was feeling, and that my breast development's going to actually be an issue and my periods are going to stop. And 
there was nothing to connect me with the the support that was actually trying to be offered. Like the, the support that was being offered were professionals that didn't know how to work with young men, but the material that was they were working with wasn't related to to young men either. And I don't think I know that it's changed uh, a bit, but I still think that's one of the huge the huge barriers for young men still with eating disorders today because people aren't expecting it. It's something that you don't normally look at. Um, the other thing too is I had body maintenance throughout my whole uh, experience. So I didn't lose weight. I didn't, I didn't gain weight. I had a six-pack. People were actually just going, well, he looks really healthy. There's no way that it could be an eating disorder. And I even remember my teacher when she said it to the paramedic going, oh, there's no way. Look, look how strong he looks. So straight away it was kind of ruled out. Um, I, I do think that it is hard for people sometimes to get the right support because I don't think um, all professions, you know, medicine, dietitians, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers are not really trained in eating disorders. It's, it's not just the forgotten... Um, diagnosis or what was mentioned before but it's also if it gets talked a bit about in those courses it's very um these are the signs these are the symptoms this is the treatment but they don't look at the 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 diversity around who the people are that actually have these disorders in the aboriginal community there is still very little um information and, and research done i mean there are researches being done but there's still a lot more that needs to be done. And it's really hard because not only didn't I have a, a male perspective of, of, of recovery, I didn't also have a cultural perspective of recovery as well. And going back, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there was nothing about Aboriginal people with eating disorders. And we're only just now in 2022 doing research in Aboriginal communities around eating disorders. So, it, it, that's a huge barrier for actually people wanting to seek help because people don't know what to do when you do turn up sometimes. We're going to speak to Tracy now and ask about kind of clinical practice, I guess, Tracy. And you've got this phrase in your slides for the presentation specialization versus generalization. So tell us a bit more about this. Yes, we would argue that that generalisation should include the specialisation. It should include asking about eating disorders and disordered eating. And that's because eating disorders are highly comorbid with depression, anxiety and suicidality. They actually have a significant overlap with genetic risk factors with all of those things. And we also know that people who are presenting for treatment are often actually a bit happier to talk about depression and anxiety than about problems they're having with their eating and they're just less likely to volunteer that information but if you actually ask you will find out that there are problems with the eating so we think uh, people with disordered eating are presenting at general mental health clinics and we would certainly encourage people to ask about eating and that can really I guess enhance the treatment pathways that people can consider it might be that they decide to treat the eating disorder. It might be that they decide to treat the depression whilst keeping an eye on the eating. 
they can actually treat both together or they might decide to focus on transdiagnostic variables or risk factors that underlie both depression, anxiety and eating disorders and try and have a more efficient way of, of dealing with it. The other uh, reason that we would advocate that people explore eating is because, as we've said, with COVID, disordered eating has increased and there's some suggestion it's increased more than any other health, mental health problem. Um, and we think particularly where the increase has been is in the eating disorders that don't quite meet a diagnosis for anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa, but they're associated with quite high levels of comorbidity and suicidality. And the other issue that really should put it on everybody's radar is that when you have disordered eating, it has a really powerful adverse impact on people's ability to think. It starts to switch off helpful epigenetic mechanisms, which can be useful for building resilience over therapy. So if we don't act, take account of the eating, then that will make the whole experience of therapy, whatever you're doing the therapy for, will be impaired. So say something more about what this means practically in services. So if I'm a GP and somebody is presenting and I'm not quite sure what's going on with them, or if I'm in an accident and emergency department, are you suggesting that we ask, we probe about eating disorders in those sorts of settings? I think that would be great. I think there's certainly evidence to show where distress is significantly elevated, and this is general distress, that uh, about 20% of people might be having a significant problem with their eating. And it just takes one question, really. Have you been having any problems with your eating or the way you feel about your body? It doesn't have to be a whole lot of questions. It just has to be, in a sense, opening up a window so that that conversation can then take place if the person wants it to. And can you say something more about if we don't ask and there is a problem with eating, um, and we find out that somebody is depressed or is anxious and we kind of push them into a treatment pathway, what's the impact of the undiscovered eating problem? Yeah, we would see that disordered eating really underlies a lot of the distress and the difficulties that people are having with concentrating, with focusing, with being present in the room at the moment, talking to people. So if that's there, it's really hard for them to get the most out of therapy. And so it will mean that therapy is probably likely to be less effective. And it, it may just simply mean that a little bit of attention paid to nutrition may significantly enhance the experience of therapy for the person. So it's really thinking about, you know, that holistic approach that you can't really help someone really focus on what they're thinking and feeling if all they're thinking about is food and they're feeling bad because of how their body looks, that, that provides a real barrier to helping people to really focus and get the most out of therapy. And just being able to acknowledge that and explore that could be incredibly powerful when people are doing therapy. If someone's listening to this podcast, they're coming along to the conference, they're thinking about whether or not they should come along. Why should they come? Who's it for? Um, we've tried to design this for someone who's a little bit reluctant to engage with eating disorders. You know, it's not their speciality. I'm not really interested. I work in something else. And so we've we've got interactive things going on. We've got a poll. We've got a Q&A section, you know, ask an eating disorders expert, you know, ask us what 
anything you've ever wanted to know, and we'll try our best to answer it. We really want to learn from the SMHR audience to understand why are we as a field in mental health research in Australia continuing to leave out eating disorders? Given the evidence of how important they are, why is this not being prioritised in our work more of the time? And we're going to try and interact with the audience as much as possible to learn from what people's experiences are in their workplace, but also let them ask us questions so that if they're willing to think about prioritising or even just including eating disorders in what they do, we can, you know, equip them with the knowledge that they need. People should come along because we're all affected by eating disorders. They are so common and so prevalent and have such a level of burden that everybody is affected by an eating disorder, will know someone who's had an eating disorder, will have had an eating disorder and will have encountered the, the consequences or the impact of unrecognised and untreated eating disorders. So we're all needing this. We're all needing to understand better how we can close the treatment gap and how we can refine treatments to be more effective, more a better understanding of what treatments work for whom, because up to date, the research has been focused very much, very biased away from a lot of people with eating disorders. As AJ said, we need to understand how we can engage and help people with eating disorders who come, who look different, who come from different walks of life, who don't meet the stereotypes. But the bottom line, we all need to understand it better. That's why I would say come, because you know someone who has an eating disorder. Mm-hmm.